9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. We are just completing the July 4th weekend, and I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City which has not been washed away by torrential rains. In Washington, D.C., which has almost been washed away by torrential rains, uh, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And we have David Sanger, who circled the storms for an hour or two, but finally got down on the ground. Hi, David. Hi, I really want to thank Rosa for coming by in the rowboat and getting me out of uh, out of National <laughs> Airport. Yeah. <laughs> David was on the on the roof of National Airport waiting for us to come by. And smarter than the three of us, as usual, we have Corey Shani <laughs> in Siena, Italy. Um, and all I can say is curses on you. How could you, why are you in such a great place? Are you in the Palio? Are you going to ride around with a flag and all? <laughs> I did not ride in the Palio, uh, but it was great fun to watch. And I'm making a study of fabulous door knockers on on huge medieval doors all over Siena as my sister and I swan around on vacation. You know, you haven't mentioned food anywhere in that. And if you were <laughs> Siena, that would be the main focus. Oh, uh, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, we, we over the weekend, we um, we didn't leave New York. and We went to a bunch of different movies, which I won't get into all of them. But one of the movies we went to, because my wife's an opera singer, is um, uh, was a, a, a film Ron Howard made about Pavarotti. And um, periodically, food would come up in this movie, because it was a big part of his life, including the vignette that... In his dying days in the hospital, his first wife, who he had been alienated from, came to see him and and reconnected in a positive way by bringing Neapolitan spaghetti to his hospital bed. <laughs> and, and it was like so moving, you know, it was, it was like, this is, this is it the is one of the really beautiful things about Italy is how intensely parochial it is, um, right? Like, you can't get that kind of cheese on your pasta in this city, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what makes Italy so wonderful. Yeah, no, it's, it's as, it is as good a place as there is. So let's go through a couple of the things that have developed this week in the news. Um, and uh, just, you know, David's here, so let's start out with... Uh, story from the New York Times that was co-written by David, um, uh, uh, which uh, the, the headline was, Iran announces plans to breach enrichment camp. Uh, seems they've gone through with that. And I, I guess the question in my mind, David, and then we'll talk to the, everybody about this, is 
What's their game? I understand what Trump's game is, but what do you think Iran's going to get from incrementally increasing their enrichment cap? Well, you know, David, my mind's still been on what Corey's game is here by driving us crazy being in Italy <laughs> while we're sitting here getting rained on. Yeah. And, and I've, I've, I've decided in the end that, that 87 she and, and sunny. Iran- yeah, I think that she and the Iranians have a sort of similar strategy here. <laughs> and 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 the the strategy is to take small steps that they know will drive people in the swamp completely crazy. Right? And so that's what the Iranians are are, are doing in this particular case. Um so um so think about what they've done over the past 2 weeks just on the nuclear side. We'll set aside the uh, the attacks on the uh, tankers a while ago, the shoot down of the uh, unarmed, uh, unmanned drone, um, and just look at the nuclear side. They have gone incrementally over the amount of uranium they're supposed to uh, possess. What they have now is a tiny fraction of what they had in 2015 when you'll remember they shipped 97% of their fuel out to Russia uh, and got it out of the country. Um, have gone uh, incrementally over the enrichment uh, limit uh, in the uh, in the Iran agreement. It's 3.67 percent. They've gone up now to 4.5 percent. The only thing you need to know about those is those are both useful only in reactors. They can't uh, you can't make a bomb out of that. But what they're doing is basically signaling don't make us do far more. We could go back to where we were in 2013 or 2014. And meanwhile, the administration is signaling, we're not backing down. We're going to to worsen the sanctions. So for the Iranians, it's a calculation of where can they find that happy medium between doing just enough to signal to the Europeans that they better intervene here, they better make up for the American sanctions, and not so much that they lead to some kind of military action or even some kind of covert action by the U.S. or Israel. Um, well, that doesn't sound, that sounds to me, Corey, like they're being very rational and doing kind of what anybody would do if put into the situation by the U.S. Yes, David, I think that's exactly right. I think every news article about the Iranians increasing their nuclear enrichment needs to start with Iran was in compliance with the joint JCPOA uh, and they were not doing this consistent with the treaty. The United States withdrew from the treaty and is denying Iran the economic benefits that made them make the agreement. Therefore, um, therefore, the United States needs to explain what's the theory of victory here, because it was American action that precipitated this. Iran was not doing this consistent with the deal. The U.S. withdrew from the treaty, claiming we need to get a better treaty that not only gets us a better nuclear weapons deal, it gets us a deal about terrorism and human rights and regional uh, under undercutting of regional governments. And, and missiles. Don't forget missiles. Yeah. Thank you, David. Also missiles. Now, it's true that Iran had, after the signing of the agreement, ramped up all the other stuff. But that's an argument for pocketing what you have on the nuclear deal and then cracking down on everything else, which 
the Trump administration had European support for while we were part of the deal. And that fell apart. That, that agreement with the Europeans fell apart. Everybody is exasperated with us when the U.S. comes back and says, no, this is an emergency. You guys need to take drastic action. Because um, everybody else's view is, you idiots set this in motion. Don't talk to us about the crisis. You created it. And what we have managed to do is make the United States of America the bad guy in this equation. And the Iranians have the sympathy of America's closest friends in the world. That is the foreign policy success that the Trump administration has achieved by withdrawing from the Iranian nuclear agreement. Wow. Uh, Rosa, do you have your crystal ball handy anywhere? Um, I have my sarcastic eight ball. That's really all we need. Even better. <laughs> Even better. Uh, we, should, we, need to, we need to market that here, the deep state sarcastic eight ball. Um, but uh, I'm just wondering, you know, picking up on Corey's comment, what, what do you think the best that the Trump administration is going to be able to get out of this? Oh, you know, if we get through the 2020 election without a, an actual armed conflict with Iran, I'll be pretty happy. You know, I, I don't see any likely positive outcome. Uh, to me, I think we're looking at gradations of, of bad, you know, ranging from the Iranians continue to push the envelope little bit by little bit. Uh, and that's not great for anybody. And nobody really does anything about it, aside from a lot of hand-wringing. But honestly, that might be better than, you know, actual overt conflict. And I, I don't see any, I don't see that the Trump administration has left themselves any path to a better outcome at this point. Um, yeah. No, I think, I, th I think that's probably right. Do you have a differing view on that, David? Well, um, the one... One piece of good news out here is that the one person in the administration who doesn't want to seem to get into a war with Iran is actually Donald Trump, right? That we, we view him right. as we've come, we've yeah, come no, full circle right. from starting the administration thinking that the triumvirate of, um, of Rex Tillerson uh, and H.R. McMaster and uh, Jim Mattis would be the restraining influence on Trump to a world in which we actually think that Trump is a restraining influence on John Bolton and to a lesser degree on um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, and that's important because every time we have seen him walk up to the edge of something that could start a bigger conflict, he has thought better of it. And while the process has been messy and ugly, and I'm not even sure I would call it a process, he certainly seemed to come out in roughly the right place when he came to the conclusion that it's not worth killing a bunch of people over the downing of an unmanned drone. Uh, so the concept of proportionality is around him. That's the good news. The bad news is, as he approaches the election, if the Iranians miscalculate here, if they go too far, if even the Europeans can't make apologies for them, even though they want to for all the reasons Corey just laid out, then I could imagine something going wrong. And the Iranians have said several things in the past day or two that if they did, I think could contribute to a much bigger conflict. One of them is they said that if the British don't give them back their oil tanker, which 
has been seized because the British believed it was headed to uh, Syria, uh, that they may take a British uh, ship. That would be bad. Okay. Uh, we have um, seen threats. That I would be astonished was, if they could take a British ship. I would too. But even if they tried, Corey, it probably would be ugly. An yeah. excellent point. I cede you the argument. Yeah. Um, you see yeah. what's happened is she's so softened up by whatever they're drinking in Italy right now that she just she said, <laughs> she'll I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, no. laughs> um, the second thing I think could go wrong is if they take enrichment to 20%, which is the highest amount that they enriched prior to the agreement, I think there's a likelihood that that could turn into something ugly. Um, not to turn deep state radio into a physics lesson, but you'll remember that it takes 90% enriched roughly to make a bomb. But when you get to 20% enriched, you're most of the way down the field there just because of the way the physics of this works. So I think people would be concerned if they wrote, drove the enrichment level up to where it was just before the 2015 deal was reached, that they would be within months of, of having enough material for a weapon. Now, Corey, the Chinese have weighed in and they've said, hey, don't pick on our friends, the Iranians. The U.S. is being a bully. You think that'll have any effect on David's uh, concern here? So I don't think that Chinese matter in this equation for a couple of reasons. First, because uh, the president of the United States is busy being a bully to China as well. Uh, in his wild vacillations between uh, you know, saying maybe we'll release this CEO, CFO of Huawei, because it's not that big a deal, and maybe we'll make a deal on Huawei. But then he goes back the other direction on it, and so he's he is hurting his own case by being so such a free radical. The other thing is, though, that it's really the Europeans everybody's playing for on this. Both the Iranians and the United States are playing for the European vote on this. And the Chinese are ultimately not very important in that. So China is trying to score cheap points on President Trump by saying that, but it actually doesn't matter very much. Um. Turning to the matter of the uh, British ship, Rosa, um, you know, we used to have a special relationship with the United Kingdom, um, but that has now fallen under uh, some tension in the past couple of days, as, it, as, as um, it has come to light that the British ambassador to the United States has actually said some unpleasant things about the president of the United States along the lines that he was inept and that he might come to a bad end as president. The president recently has said that he will no longer uh, have his administration deal with this person, but that he likes the queen. So yeah. That offsets <laughs> things, you know. Right. But, I, I don't think this is going to have any particular impact on the special relationship um, because, precisely because, good Lord, <laughs> is doing what he does, which is when he's criticized, he attacks the person who criticized him. But uh, as long as the queen is nice to him, I think I think it'll all work out. No, I, I mean, uh, the British ambassador, uh, someone leaked cables that he wrote back, uh, back home, 
to let the mothership know what was going on and gave his honest assessment. And, you know, there's a there's a a great tradition uh, in the U.S. as well as in the U.K. uh, for diplomats when they are sending those official cables uh, to actually put some real energy into being smart and being witty, which which I approve of because more government offices could use some doses of humor in their in their official communications. Um, Are you saying so, that if the deep state was more like deep state radio? Precisely. Then... <laughs> it would be so much more fun. <laughs> that is, that um, is and, our main purpose here. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so he sent back some pretty unvarnished truths, uh, uh, essentially saying, you know, Trump's an idiot and he's out of control and nobody knows what's going on, but he, he you know, flattery get you everywhere. So, so clearly, he's not going to be invited to any state dinners for a while. Um, it is conceivable uh, that he will even end up being moved by the Brits to a new post on the theory that uh, he can't function effectively. But I, I honestly, I, I sort of doubt it because the truth is, it's not as though President Trump himself is spending a ton of time meeting with the British ambassador. You know that most of those contacts are happening at a lower level. Um, and in fact, given the, the the number of posts in the State Department, as well as other U.S. agencies that are still empty, Trump has not nominated, the Senate has not confirmed people, so they're, they're filled by acting folks who are mostly career people. You know, I, I don't even think it necessarily makes any particular difference to his ability to get things done, which is probably pretty minimal right now, regardless, just because of the overall dysfunction of the of the executive branch under Trump. Um, so I don't think in the in the long run, I think this is, you know, gives everybody a good chuckle, um, but it's not going to have any particular impact on diplomatic relations. Um, well, David, David, you know, earlier you made yeah, a re- earlier you made a reference to our Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and when you made the reference, I thought of this instance, and I thought you mean Secretary of State in name Mike Pompeo. Since apparently the UK is planning to send an emissary to discuss Brexit with the US, its trade minister, and that trade minister, who will also address these issues, um, is scheduled to meet with Ivanka Trump, uh, who you may recall has handled all (laughs) of our senior negotiations with Asia recently. Um, And so I'm wondering how Mike Pompeo is feeling about being a special assistant to Ivanka Trump, and how this may color the relationship. Well, that is, um, you know, the problem, as we've discovered, for everybody who's in the national security world, which is that they have to either figure out how to manipulate around her or her husband, you know, who was handling Middle East peace, and that's worked out uh, just the way it's worked out. Uh, let me go back to Kim Darrick for a second, because I think there are a couple of things that are worth thinking about with this release. So the first is that um, Kim Derrick comes right out of the the sort of um, mainstream of the uh, British Foreign Service. He was the um, British ambassador, or I'm sorry, the British representative to the EU. Uh, he was national security advisor. So he's right out of their establishment kind of view. So that's, that's the first. Um, the second uh, thing that you need to think about for him is he's probably going to be leaving in the next six to eight months anyway if you just look at the amount of time he spent in the U.S. and the chances that he would continue to represent you know, a new prime minister probably pretty low. So the theory is that this wasn't actually about him. 
This was about leaking stuff in order to assure who his successor would be. And right now, the betting had been, until all of this happened, mm. that it would be Mark, Mark Sedwell, who was, mm-hmm. was his successor as the National Security uh, Advisor, is now the Cabinet Secretary, is also a career Foreign Service person, very much out of the same cloth, is blamed by a bunch of the Brexiteers for not supporting a sort of hard out of the European Union. And they may well have been leaking this in order to make sure that a real Brexiteer who loves Trump gets appointed the next British ambassador to the United States. Because I don't think you go to all this effort to go after somebody who you think is going to retire from the Foreign Service within a, you know, half a year or so. Um, yes, that's true. You also, as the president mentioned in his tweet, uh, breaking up with the British ambassador, in which he said he would no longer see him, but he liked the Queen. Uh, I don't think he's ever seen him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> exactly. Not, not, not individually. I think in in groups when the Prime Minister has come, he certainly has. Yeah, but he did mention Corey that that the UK is about to have a new Prime Minister. Uh, current thoughts are that that Prime Minister is somebody who once himself was Foreign Minister, and even before that, when he worked with the Foreign Ministry was viewed as incompetent by his senior the foreign minister. Uh, so, you know, this may be the least of the problems the British Foreign Service is facing. Yes, I, I actually think the crisis of competent governance in both Britain and the United States right now is a serious problem for the free world. And the, the, the series of of, you know, feckless decisions by people who ought to be taking responsibility for the welfare of their countries is breathtaking in both Europe, in both Britain and the United States. And, you know, I, I saw an article in the newspaper the other day suggesting that the British intelligence services had been exploring while he was foreign minister whether it they could uh, preclude him from seeing classified information that they did not believe he would behave competently and discreetly in the so you're, you're saying this is going to be a match made in heaven with donald trump maybe except I don't uh, think you, as, I don't think heaven came into that, but yeah, it's going to be a beautiful they thing. Be, they can sit together, leaking classified information, although with luck they just won't read it, so they won't be able to leak it. Yes, that's entirely that is one possibility. The other possibility, though, is that it's you know two clowns in a clown car, and <laughs> and while all of our countries are dealing with serious national security problems um, and we time is not on our side on these things dealing with the national debt in the united states dealing with the rise of china dealing with how do we build a communications infrastructure consistent with our company's capabilities that protects what we want to protect from predatory Chinese behavior. These are really important decisions that are going to have to be made in the next couple of years with the potential for leadership in Britain, actually the continuation of leadership in Britain that doesn't care about the big problems because they are, they, are, they are completely 
solipsistically engaged with Brexit and a United States that, you know, has Ivanka Trump negotiating our trade deals. This is just, it's, it's not funny because it's got huge important consequences for the country. Um, and so I, you know, I see the pictures of Boris Johnson parachuting while London mayor, and he looks like the idiot he is. But the point is that actually both our countries are electing leaderships that it's not funny, it's dangerous. Um, well, no question about that. It, it, it is slightly unfair to Ivanka because whereas president has been notoriously unsuccessful on trade deals, she's gotten all sorts of copyright approvals in China and elsewhere uh, and has struck a whole bunch of deals while she was working for this White House. I mean, that's to her credit. Oh, that's right. These people are grifters. Um, yeah, and we are, the, we are the people being grifted. Yeah. So, so Rosa... Let me put this in a little more context to um, read to you from a, a tweet the president sent out um, on, this, on this subject uh, to try to win the support, I guess, of the British government. And here's how the tweet goes. I've known Jeff for 15 years, terrific. Oh, no, that's a different tweet. Sorry. <laughs> um, oh, David. That's, that's not the one. Sneaky. No, that's not the one that I meant. Let me go. Let me go back a, a back a tweet. Um, I have been very critical about the way the UK and Prime Minister Theresa May handled Brexit. This is how he started the tweet about the ambassador. What a mess she and her representatives have created. I told her how it should be done, but she decided to go another way. And then I do not know the ambassador, but he is not liked or well thought of. We will no longer deal with him. You know, from a diplomatic perspective, um, it seems to me that if you're trying to complain about the behavior of an ambassador, probably the best approach is not to insult everybody who he works for. But, but <laughs> well, maybe I'm misreading. You're forgetting who we're dealing with here, David. Um, I know you're not really forgetting it, but... But no, this is this is the Trump style. I, I mean, I think um, probably the nicest thing one could say about Donald Trump is that he doesn't always calculate whether doing things like tweeting is in his actual self-interest before he does them. He just does them. Um, so is this is this a wise tweet? No. Series of tweets, rather. Um, are any of his tweets... Um, wise uh very few of them are so no surprise um no surprise he's he's happy to you know blow up any relationship he can uh yeah well he's also looking for distractions every five minutes he, he picked a fight with the u.s women's soccer team um uh, which he clearly uh lost david um, since he actually he actually had to do a nice tweet about them that was actually most unusual. That's right. Yeah. Well. Well. He he forgot though that he had already said that he was going to invite them win or lose and then uh, said uh, right after they won we're looking at whether to invite them of course <laughs> since their star had already said she's not coming um, and you know it's the, how many times have we seen this play out with different sports teams. Um, but uh, he did at least a little belatedly, given when the when the uh, 
the whole thing ended the other day uh, on Sunday. He did belatedly send out a congratulatory tweet. I had worried for a moment that he might not. Corey, did you find a place in Italy to watch that match? So forgive me, please, folks. There are minstrels outside my window. Uh, oh, so please just, save us. This happens every night. <laughs> it's Italy. Um, so forgive the music in the background. It's Corey. Um, <laughs> uh, what I was starting to say was that... Um, uh, so I did not watch the glory of the American women's soccer team, uh, but I, I delight that when they won, that not only were Americans jubilant, Americans were chanting equal pay um, when they won, because that too is a big part. You know, um, I, I read people complaining about, about celebrities and sports stars uh, taking political stances. And I wish we lived in an age where nobody knew or cared anybody else's politics, but we don't live in that age. And so people standing up for what they believe in is a really beautiful thing right now. And, and the, what the president wants is to set a set of rules where he gets to be the one who, the only one who gets to take, make political takes in apolitical circumstances. But I think what we're seeing in American politics, and I think it's fundamentally healthy, is everybody else figuring out how to play by the rules that the president's winning by. And we may wish we were playing by different rules, but we're not. Well, you know, but I, there is something very encouraging. I watched that soccer game. I watched lots of sports. I love sports. I love soccer, perhaps most of all. And, and I've watched every Women's World Cup, and it was really inspiring. They're probably the best team I've ever seen um, uh, in that sport, but one of the best in any other. But they did this whole thing while shouldering a burden, as some, are, uh, some articles have talked about, uh, regarding the role of women, equal pay, uh, getting into a bit of a, a spat with uh, Trump in the White House uh, and moving the needle forward. And, you know, as I think about this, Rosa, you know, you see that. Uh, you see this Jeffrey Epstein prosecution to which I made a, an allusion earlier, uh, a prosecution of a sexual predator who uh, had worked a kind of male-dominated judicial system uh, in ways that have kept him from facing real serious consequences for his apparently ghastly actions, uh, but where women uh, uh, journalists didn't let up, uh, reported on the case, leading the way by the Miami Herald. And, uh, and that led the uh, Southern District of New York uh, and the FBI to reopen things as the, by their own admission. And, and, and you're getting a different sort of approach to justice. And, you know, you've got a bunch of women candidates who are among the leaders in the Democratic thing. Uh, and that's very encouraging. And, you know, I, I, I have to say, and maybe you want to talk about this a, a bit, this initiative that you and Corey and others are involved with 
to get women in, uh, you know, have gender equity and leadership positions in the national security community has just had an amazingly positive response. I know, uh, the, the soccer team would not have won without us. Uh, you know, they may said that. Uh, it's really wonderful that people, <laughs> that 13 Democratic candidates have all 15. taken the pledge. 15, thank you, Rosa. Well, then, no, it is wonderful that 15 Democratic candidates have pledged that they're going to approach this. And I see it as part of this whole... This no, whole I, I think that's right. And and one of the points that, that we've made uh, as we've we rolled out the launch of the uh, Leadership Council for Women in National Security um, has been this is... This is about fairness, but it's not only about fairness. Like, of course, basic fairness says, you know, half the citizens of the country should have the same shot the other half have at reaching leadership positions. But that's not the only reason to think it's important to have you know, gender parity in these kinds of positions. It's, it's also because there's so much research on the ways in which diverse teams in general are stronger teams. There's, they're less likely to fall prey to groupthink. They're more likely to innovate. And, you know, when it comes to gender, I don't think you have to be sort of a gender essentialist. And, and, and I am not one, you know, that I, I've never, I've always been very skeptical, as you know, of these arguments that, you know, women are just inherently different from men. We're just, women are nicer, you know, more nurturing and, and it's just biologically driven. Uh, and that therefore, if you have more women in certain kinds of positions, <laughs> you're going to get, you know, nicer, more nurturing foreign policy or something. I, I, I'm inclined that's, to think. No, that. I like the, where this is going. No, Rosa and I are living proof. That's not <laughs> right. true. That's Hell right. No. And, and the punchline is clearly no more men journalists. Is this, well, is that yes, correct? that is one yeah. of the, no, no, clearly. but, 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 in all, but, but more but, minstrels. You, know, you, you don't have, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to think that there's any biological specialness about women that leads them to make different decisions in order to say in, in the society that we live in, most women have different experiences than most men in certain ways. And there are, there are patterns to the ways those experiences are different. And when you get a lot of women in the room for the first time when you, and, and in fact, there have been all sorts of studies done on what's the tipping point where an underrepresented group starts really shifting the culture. So they're not just token anymore, but uh, you know, it's about 30% representation. When you get to that tipping point, you get a group of people who, who may have a different set of background experience, a different set of assumptions, a different set of priorities, and that starts showing up in the decisions to get made. And I think, you know, when you have women journalists, they are often more attuned to the issues that women face, the kinds of issues that a group of male editors might say, oh, well, that's just not that newsworthy or that's not just not that important or something like that. And you start you start getting different decisions that get made and that results in different kind of coverage. It results in this case, we hope, in somebody ending up uh, in prison who should have been there a long time ago. Yeah, and we've seen this a lot, David. I, I, you know, I mean, uh, the, not only have women journalists been in the lead on this story, but uh, before we went on, you and I were joking about uh, a not very funny story of a, of a male editor, you know, cutting references to certain crimes by this Jeffrey Epstein out of a story a woman was writing because Epstein had called him and essentially, you know, said he's sensitive to these stories of girls and he took it. 
I, well, I let's see. make it clear this this editor was not at a publication I work at. No, but, no. Uh, no. You, guys, you guys have had controversy too with how you covered the yeah. rape accusation on on Trump. Um, that's right. That's right. Which, by the way, I, I felt after not covering it terribly well, there was a recognition of that. Uh, you know, there was a recognition that a mistake was made, uh, which is positive, and I assume that's because of. Of more balance internally. Am I wrong? Is that no? In fact, uh, there are in the in the newsroom population now. There are um, slightly more women than men working at the time. Certainly not the way it was when I came here uh, thirty seven years ago. Um, but uh, when when the numbers were were dramatically smaller, they're still not uh, enough up in the in the top leadership. Although vastly more than there were even a few years ago. Um, but uh, I think you're right. I think that the sensitivities to these issues and to the way you go about covering them, planning coverage, looking for new ways to go doing the the investigative work is the key to it. And I think we've seen a huge change. And in fact, I don't think that the indictment of Jeremy Epstein would have actually even happened had it not been for incredibly intrepid journalism at the Miami Herald. Exactly. So uh, let me just add that you know, yes, the New York Times bears culpability for mistakes. I mean, good organizations make mistakes. An organization that is so fearful of making a mistake isn't going to be a successful organization. But but good organizations make mistakes. They diverse teams help them identify mistakes and help them come to more robust decision making processes. And and so I think good organizations do that, and diversity of all kinds helps good organizations do that. Yeah, and perhaps someday, Rosa, we'll get to the point where if a political candidate is accused credibly of sexual assaulting 15 or 20 people, um, uh, it might be covered in such a way that voters would take it seriously, too. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And that's from Rosa's sarcastic eight ball. Um, uh, well, I mean, I mean, sarcastic eight ball. But I, I mean, that's what else exactly is there what to say? That deserves. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what it yeah. deserves. That the people who are defending President Trump's comportment by saying we knew this and it didn't matter um, need to have all of us say, let's let's bring your son and daughter into the room and let's say this looking at their faces and we need to find ways to reach them as fellow Americans, as fellow moral beings and find grounds for a conversation that restores the decency that is fundamental to a functional American body politic. Unquestionably true. And, uh, and a good place for us to wrap up. I think one of the reasons that this Jeffrey Epstein story has gotten a lot of traction, it, besides the fact that it's repellent and salacious, is the idea that some high-level public officials may or may not have been involved, um, and in fact that the Southern District of New York has its public corruption unit uh, leading the way on this case suggests that may also be true. But um, you know, I, 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 we, you, you wonder how many of these stories have to break, 
how many grotesque associations have to be put in the spotlight and examined um, before even the defenders or the people who have turned a deaf ear to this can do so no longer. Uh, and as we see one after another tipping point in this area, um, one can only hope that we are going to encounter tipping point uh, with regard to uh, this kind of uh, predatory and, and disgusting behavior as well. Uh, we shall see. And we will see as we go forward through upcoming episodes of uh, Deep State Radio. Um, and uh, uh, we hope you will join us for those. We have another later this week. We'll do live uh, from New York City, as we do on Thursdays. Um, uh, typically, we do three. This week, we're doing two because it's summertime. So we're going to do one on today and one on Thursday. Um, and of course, you'll have unredacted. And starting again next week, we have a long run of uh, fresh new episodes of National Security Magazine with big newsmakers. And that's uh, uh, very exciting. Um, and uh, so keep an eye out for that because these are, uh, are going to be news-making interviews, um, uh, all from the DSR Network. So go to the dsrnetwork.com and see them and blog entries and, uh, uh, and, you know, you can buy a mug or become a member and, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't regret that a bit. Membership's been growing a lot recently. We're very grateful for that. Uh, we appreciate the support. So it's a good way to spend a few moments this summer is joining up, uh, and helping to support future episodes of deep state radio. Uh, thank you, Rosa. And thank you, Corey. And thank you, David. Uh, we hope you'll join us again next week when we will celebrate, by the way, the 200th episode of Deep State Radio, um, and uh, uh, which is amazing. Um, uh, uh, and we will uh, go over some of the highlights and announce some new things. So please join us again for that. And uh, thanks to all you guys. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.